Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back. I'm Nico Perino, and this is So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversation. Before we begin today's candid conversation with Jeffrey Rosen, however, I want to begin with a few news items. The first bit of news is the announcement from Flying Dog Brewery that they quit the Brewers Association after the association announced plans earlier this year to crack down on offensive beer labels. Longtime listeners of this show might remember our podcast profile, Flying Dog Brewery, from last October. If you're new to the show and haven't listened to that episode yet, I encourage you to check it out. It's titled Flying Dog Brewery, Good Beer, No Censorship. If you have listened to that episode, however, you'll recall that the brewery got into a bit of a dogfight with the Michigan Liquor Control Commission in 2009 over the label for its Raging Bitch Beer. A lawsuit ensued, Flying Dog won, and it used the proceeds to set up a First Amendment society. So obviously, here when the Trade Association announced its plans earlier this year to go after offensive beer labels... That wasn't going to sit well with a brewery that has made a name for itself for its free speech advocacy, and that free speech advocacy becoming so much a part of its identity, as those of you who have listened to that past podcast know. In a statement from Flying Dog CEO Jim Caruso, who was interviewed as part of that aforementioned podcast, he says that the Brewers Association's new marketing and advertising code is nothing more than a blatant attempt to bully and intimidate craft brewers into self-censorship and to only create labels that are acceptable to the management and directors of the BA. He continued by saying that, on principle, Flying Dog will never contribute to, support, or in any way sanction any organization that is so averse to freedom of expression that it actively engages in any form of censorship. Jim ended his statement by pledging to contribute to the First Amendment Society, quote, an amount equal to double the tens of thousands of dollars it has spent on its BA membership and BA-related events annually. Now, I'm not a independent brewer. I, all, I, I was a craft brewer, a home brewer, for a period of time, but I gave that up once I moved to New York City and didn't have the room or the space any longer to continue brewing. Uh, but since I'm not an independent brewer, I don't know the importance of membership for example, in the Brewers Association. But I do commend a principled stand for free expression, and I've come to expect nothing less from Jim and his colleagues at Flying Dog. So kudos to them, and I look forward to seeing what they do with that increased funding for the First Amendment Society. The second bit of news here comes out of China, where earlier this month, Chinese dissident and 2010 Nobel Peace Prize winner Liu Xiaobo died of liver cancer. The prolific writer and veteran human rights activist saw his books and even his name banned by the communist government. Imprisoned several times after the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre, his last conviction came in 2009. His crime? Inciting subversion of state power by co-writing a manifesto calling for political reform. And the punishment? 11 years behind bars. I'm by no means a Xiaobo expert. However, I have been following this story surrounding his death quite closely, 
And I have been doing some reading about his quite extraordinary life, which China is doing everything in its power to prevent those in China from learning about. His name, as some of you may be, may be aware, has been scrubbed from Chinese internet by state censors. Efforts to use alternative names and references for him have been quashed to the extent that they can be, of course. There's also been allegations that the popular messaging service, WhatsApp, has been disrupted. And some say that the censorship efforts within, Chi within China have been so thorough and so successful that most Chinese don't know who Liu Xiaobo is or that he died for that matter. But there have been some success in evading the censors, of course. After all, as John Gilmore, who is one of the founders of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, once said, the net interprets censorship as damage and routes around it. In any case, while I was reading up on this story and, and about Xiaobo's life, I stumbled upon his 2010 Nobel lecture, which was delivered as a statement because, of course, Xiaobo was imprisoned. He was actually the only, only the third Nobel Peace Prize winner ever to be awarded the prize while being detained or in prison. And he was given the award for, quote, his long and nonviolent struggle for fundamental human rights in China. His statement, which is entitled, I Have No Enemies, my final statement, is really quite a beautiful and profound statement. And I, and I encourage everyone to read it. Uh, but what struck me was that he ended his statement, this, of course, his final statement, with a stirring testament to the power and importance of freedom of expression to the individual. United States Supreme Court Justice Benjamin Cardozo, of course, called freedom of expression the matrix, the indispensable condition of nearly every other form of freedom. And when you read Xiaobo's words, you really understand what Cardozo meant by that statement. Xiaobo lost his freedom for doing nothing more than putting his thought, his identity, so to speak, in writing. I'm now going to read the final words of Xiaobo from his statement. And these, I, I think it's worth saying, were his last words, I believe. The last words that anyone has ever read or heard or ever will read or hear from him. So here we go. These are the final paragraphs from his Nobel statement. I look forward to the day when my country is a land with freedom of expression where speech of every citizen will be treated equally well, where different values, ideas, beliefs, and political views can both compete with each other and peaceably coexist, where both majority and minority views will be equally guaranteed, and where the political views that differ from those currently in power, in particular, will be fully respected and protected, where all political views will be spread out under the sun for people to choose from, where every citizen can state political views without fear, and where no one can, under any circumstances, suffer political persecution for voicing divergent political views. I hope that I will be the last victim of China's endless literary inquisitions, and that from now on, no one will be incriminated because of speech. Freedom of expression, he continues, is the foundation of human rights, the source of humanity, and the mother of truth. To strangle freedom of speech is to trample on human rights, stifle humanity, and suppress truth. In order to exercise the right to freedom of speech conferred by the Constitution, one should fulfill the social responsibility of a Chinese citizen, 
There is nothing criminal in anything I'd done, he said. But if charges are brought against me because of this, I have no complaints. Thank you, everyone. Now, that's some powerful stuff right there. And quite the reminder of the price that some have paid and still continue to pay for the most fundamental of all human activities, that is, expressing one's inner thoughts. Rest in peace, Leo Jabot. I'm considering doing a more thorough investigation of China's censorship regime here in an upcoming episode. I'm thinking one of those scripted narrative-style podcasts that we've occasionally done here in the past, like that Flying Dog episode, for example. If this is something that you would be interested in, please do let me know. Uh, you, of course, can reach me on Facebook, Twitter, or via email at, so to speak, at thefire.org. With the news now out of the way, let's get on with the show. Our guest today is Jeffrey Rosen. He is the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center and a professor of law at the George Washington University School of Law. He's also a contributing editor at The Atlantic and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. With degrees from Harvard, Oxford, and Yale Law School, Jeff is a pretty impressive and, I might say, accomplished guy. He's our guest today to discuss his book, Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet. It was released last year to commemorate the 100th anniversary of Brandeis's confirmation to the United States Supreme Court. He was, of course, nominated by Woodrow Wilson. I didn't know much about Louis Brandeis before reading Jeff's book. Of course, for those of us in the free speech world, Brandeis is regarded as one of the most important protectors of the First Amendment right to free speech ever to sit on the Supreme Court. And I, like many of you, uh, was familiar with his concurrence in Whitney v. California. But beyond all that, I was pretty much in the dark. Uh, But after reading Jeff's book, I learned that he was a fascinating man, and I think you all will learn as much about him in this conversation, which Jeff and I actually had earlier this month at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. We spoke just before Jeff was about to give his keynote address at our annual FIRE Student Network Conference, which was being held, actually, at the National Constitution Center. I want to give a quick show note here before we begin. At one or more points during this podcast, I refer to Louis Brandeis as Louis Brandeis. Given that the man died in 1941 and most of my engagement with him and his legacy comes from the written word, I wasn't familiar, of course, with the proper pronunciation of his first name. I guess the Louis-Louis confusion is pretty common, but Jeff assures me that it is pronounced Louis, so that's what I'm going to use here in this introduction. I now present to you Jeffrey Rosen. Jeffrey Rosen, thanks for coming on the show today. Great to be here. So to begin this conversation about one of America's most famous jurists, I want to start by asking why Brandeis? Why write about a Supreme Court justice who has been dead for 79 years at this point? Your book came out last year, uh, but has been dead uh, 79 years as of 2017, and about whom so much ink has been spilled. Why Brandeis? Because Brandeis is the most relevant prophet of free speech and privacy in the digital age since Thomas Jefferson, as well as the most far-seeing critic of bigness in business and government since the author of the Declaration of Independence himself. Yeah, this is a free speech podcast, and Brandeis is widely regarded as one of the most ardent defenders 
of free speech who has ever sat on the Supreme Court. Do you think that's justified? Because he was also a justice who sided with the majority in Schenck uh, early in his career. He joined the court in 1916, if I'm correct. Uh, Schenck was 1919. And last month, of course, was the 100th anniversary of the Espionage Act of 1917, which Schenck was found guilty of violating. Louis Brandeis changed his mind about free speech. This is an example of a man who said, I will never be defeated on a question of fact. And the evolution of Louis Brandeis when it came to free speech, uh, which happened over the summer of 1919, is the most important in the history of free speech. And having voted, as you said, to uphold a whole bunch of convictions under the Espionage Act, along with the entire Supreme Court, he came to see that he had been wrong in those cases and to conclude that speech could only be banned if it was intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. That principle, the cornerstone of our modern American free speech tradition, the shining ideal that distinguishes us from every other Western democracy in the world, not to mention illiberal uh, non-democracies, came from Brandeis's path-breaking concurrence in the Whitney case. And we can talk more about why he changed his mind or about the principle that he came to embrace in Whitney, but it's just an extraordinary example of someone who not only grew, but transformed the meaning of free speech into what we know it is today. Well, he's not the only justice who sat on the Supreme Court at around this time to change their mind. Justice Holmes, of course, I think there was a book written recently called uh, uh, Justice Holmes, how one jurist changed his mind and changed the world or something along those lines. Where, where do you think Brandeis fits in in a, in a legal environment where Holmes is sort of the most revered uh, justice sitting on the court at that time? Or would you disagree that, with that statement? I would. That, that's, that's fighting words <laughs> to a Brandeis uh, uh, devotee. And I really will argue very passionately on this podcast. I want your listeners to learn from both Holmes and Brandeis. But they had completely different approaches to free speech. And I believe that Brand, it's Brandeis's vision that's both more idealistic, more influential, and more relevant in defining our modern notions of free speech than that of Holmes. So both Holmes and Brandeis changed their mind over the summer of 1919, uh, partly because they read an article by Zechariah Chafee, uh, a Harvard law professor, about free speech in wartime. And Chafee had been really concerned about all of the prosecutions under the Espionage Act and tried to persuade both of them to embrace a principle close to the one that Jefferson and Madison had embraced in the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions, which Brandeis crystallized as the principle that speech could only be banned if it was intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. But they embraced that principle for different reasons. Holmes was a nihilist. He had ideals about abolitionism that had been crushed in the Civil War where he was wounded three times and almost died. And he came to believe that because people were so brutal that unless the majority could crush the minority through laws, then open violence would result. And he had a kind of Nietzschean vision about the need for the strong to crush the weak and no faith at all that truth would emerge from what he famously called the marketplace of ideas. His, his uh, opinion in, in Shank, The Great Descent, as Thomas Healy rightly called it in a wonderful book that you referred to and which listeners should definitely check out. I know I didn't get the name right. <laughs> no, you got the subtitle right, but the, the, yeah. the main title was The Great Descent. And it is a great descent, and I can't do it from memory, but it's uh, men have come to re realize that time has upset many fighting faiths, 
the best uh, test of free speech is the ability of an idea to get itself embraced by the marketplace of ideas. Um, and he did have this inspiring and accurate notion of the importance of a libertarian, unregulated marketplace where good ideas could triumph over bad ones. The, the thing about Holmes is he had no faith that good ideas actually would triumph. He said, I loathe the thick-fingered clowns we call the people, even at the same time as he said, if the people want to go to hell, I'll help them. It's my job. Yeah. So that's why Holmes basically votes to uphold every single illiberal law that ever comes before him, including most notoriously the uh, eugenics laws mandating the sterilization of so-called imbeciles and Buck v. Bell. Um, and then goes home and wrote, writes to his friend Harold Lasky, I upheld the sterilization laws today. Nothing I've done all week has given me so much pleasure because Holmes is an enthusiastic eugenicist as many progressives of his time were, unlike Brandeis, who did not uh, uh, have any reported enthusiasms about eugenics, although he, he was in favor of judicial restraint. But um, all this is to say that Holmes's vision of speech is based on the idea that it's not the business of the government to put its hand on the scales because strong ideas have to crush weak ones. Brandeis has a completely different justification. Should we talk about that? Yeah, let's talk about it. <laughs> All right. Well, everyone has to read his concurrence in Whitney versus California, which uh, Justice Elena Kagan told me for the book is the most important statement of free speech in the 20th century. Take that, Holmes. <laughs> so Whitney is this really uh, jarring case involving a woman, Anita Whitney, who gives this mild speech at a California Socialist Party meeting, essentially denouncing lynching and arguing against racism. And she's indicted under this California criminal syndicalism law, which essentially criminalizes attempting to think about assisting the possibility of encouraging disrespect for the law and being a socialist. It's a very attenuated idea. Laws like this had been upheld previously, as you said, under the old test, which said that if a law has a bad tendency to promote disobedience, it can be uh, the speech can be suppressed. And the mere possibility that someone who heard Anita Whitney's speech might lead them to join the Socialist or Communist Party was enough to allow California to try to. She wasn't even a member of the party. She just gave a speech at a party meeting. So Brandeis, for technical reasons, which are not. Uh, relevant here, concurs rather than dissents, but it's essentially a dissenting opinion, which he'd cut and paste from a previous dissent that he was going to uh, publish involving one of the most famous uh, uh, socialists of his time who'd uh, been indicted under one of these laws, but he died before the case came down. So the case was mooted out and Brandeis takes the language and puts it in Whitney. So what's the core of Brandeis's Whitney decision? He has two great influences, Jefferson and fifth century Athens. So Jefferson, he quotes twice. He has footnotes to Jefferson's first inaugural, we're all Republicans and we're all Federalists, and also Jefferson's letter to Elijah Boardman, the Connecticut preacher, where Jefferson talks about freedom of conscience being a natural right that comes from God or nature and not government, and the need for complete freedom of opinion being necessary to ensure the triumph of reason. And Jefferson believes, like Locke and like the other founders, that we have certain faculties, beginning with reason at the top and passion at the bottom, and we have a duty to educate ourselves, to cultivate our faculties of reason, and that only having access to all ideas will allow us to exercise our reasoning powers with total untrammeled freedom. And then Brandeis's other influence is 
fifth century Athens, and one of his favorite books is called The Greek Commonwealth by Alfred Zimmern, which listeners could check out if they're real Brandeis wonks, as I hope you are. And Zimmern, like Brandeis, sees in fifth century Athens, where citizens deliberate together in small face-to-face groups, the apotheosis of the public reason that he believes is necessary for self-government. So it's this belief that by deliberating together in thoughtful communities— rather than having quick one-off votes or uh, allowing mob rule, citizens can achieve a reason, thoughtful, common good. And that's why Brandeis concludes the best response to evil counsels is good ones and counter speech is the best response to hate speech. And Brandeis expresses all this in the most poetic paragraph about free speech, I think, that was written in the 20th century. And I have the book next to me, but I think I can do... The paragraph. I've heard you do it You've before. You've heard me do it as a party trick. <laughs> I'm here. I'm totally looking forward to the fire uh, convention uh, later today, and I'm going to try. You're to do our it keynote ad- a speaker. Uh, yeah. So let's let's. This is a rehearsal for yes. tonight, and we'll see how I do it. Um, and begin by noting Brandeis refers not to Madison and Hamilton and the Constitution makers of 1787, but to Jefferson and the revolutionaries of 1776. Here he goes in Whitney. Those who made our revolution believed that the final end of the state was to make men free to develop their faculties, and that in its government, the deliberative forces should prevail over the arbitrary. They valued liberty both as an end and as a means. They believed liberty to be the secret of happiness and courage to be the secret of liberty. That's the quotation from Pericles' funeral oration, as translated by Alfred Zimmern. They believed that freedom to think as you will and to speak as you think are means indispensable to the discovery and spread of political truth, that without free speech and assembly, discussion would be futile, that with them, discussion affords ordinarily adequate protection against the dissemination of noxious doctrine, that the greatest threat to freedom is an inert people, that public discussion is a political duty, and that this should be a fundamental principle of the American government. Okay, so that's a beautiful line. (laughs) It is an amazing line. You know, you mentioned you're speaking at FIRE's conference this evening as our keynote speaker. Are you going to be talking about Brandeis? Of course. What else would I be talking about? (laughs) And you'd probably do that quote as (laughs) well. I will indeed. I want to fire up the crowd and get them inspired by Brandeis. But you, you mentioned that he thought that people should be deliberating in thoughtful communities. And although the decision, or the concurrence, I should say here, uh, didn't address college and university environments, there's a lot of inferences you, you can make about what he thought about these environments from the from that speech, developing our faculties, deliberating and in, in thoughtful communities. He he drew he does draw a connection between education and discussion. Um, and you write in the book, Brandeis shared Jefferson's belief that the democracy could not remain free without educated citizens who were capable of understanding and defending their liberties. Uh, Alan Charles Coors, who was a co-founder of FIRES, always said that a nation that is not educated in liberty will not long endure in liberty and will not even know when it is lost. So what do you think uh, Brandeis would say about today's college free speech debate, given what he said in his concurrence in Whitney? Brandeis would be appalled at the attempts to suppress freedom of speech on campus and would unequivocally and strongly insist that speech on campus and anywhere else can only be banned if it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. I have no hesitation in channeling Brandeis on this question because he was so crystal lean in in the power of his convictions. As you said, Brandeis like Jefferson, like Alan Coors, 
believed that, these are Jefferson's words, democracy cannot survive both ignorant and free. He thinks that, and remember this, this passage I just recited, that public discussion is a political duty and that this should be a fundamental principle of the American government. The greatest threat to freedom is an, iner is an inert people. The idea is that we don't just have a right to free speech. We have a duty to educate ourselves about the best arguments on all sides, to listen respectfully to the best arguments, to hear hateful counsels as well as good ones so that we can fulfill our duty of public deliberation. So... There is a serious moral debate about the appropriate balance between dignity and equality on the one hand and liberty on the other. And the feelings of students who, f who believe that their dignity is affronted and that hate speech threatens equality, uh, that's a question that deserves to be debated and those feelings should be uh, admitted into the, into the public debate. But when it comes to what speech can be excluded from the public debate on campus, Brandeis is clear, nothing, no speech can be excluded from the public debate on campus, except for speech that's both intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. And that precision of that test is so important. It's not speech that might be so upsetting that people could possibly feel compelled to riot. That's the heckler's veto. It's not speech that if someone reads online could possibly make someone feel unsafe? Absolutely not. It's speech that's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. It's go shoot Jeff now, which podcast listeners may feel like doing. <laughs> or it's literally targeting a particular individual by name and calling for violence against them. Not even the racist Ku Klux Klan speech in the Brandenburg case, which in 1967 embraced Brandeis's inspiring Whitney vision and made it the law of the land, was found to meet the incitement test. That was speech where a racist Ku Klux Klan guy stood up and said, you know, unless there's some remedy taken, white people might have to take revengeance against black people. Uh, illiterate, but, um, you know, political speech at a Klan rally. And that's at a Klan rally. Yeah. And the court says, no, that's not enough. It's, it's essentially, it's offensive and hateful, but it's not intended to, and nor was it likely to cause imminent violence. So I have the privilege of running this great place, the nonpartisan National Constitution Center. And I have to be very accurate and neutral and nonpartisan in describing the best constitutional arguments on all sides of contested questions. So it's a serious thing that I'm able to tell you without any equivocation or qualification that both Brandeis and the modern U.S. Supreme Court, because they've embraced Brandeis's principles, would not view this as a close or hard question. The principle is really clear. You can't ban speech unless it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence, period. Yeah. So he that that decision that Whitney decision the concurring opinion uh, came in 1927. This is eight years after Brandeis had changed his mind and maybe changed the world. <laughs> um, and and but in 1920 he also had a dissent in Gilbert v. Minnesota uh, that was speech protective. Wilson was the president who nominated him to the Supreme Court, N not a friend of free speech. Uh, you can disagree with me, but you're over there shaking your head. What did Wilson think about any of this? Because he was the one who stood in front of Congress and called for an espionage act, I believe, and it was in April of uh, 1917. It was passed into law, I think, in June. Um, what did Wilson think of any of this, or do we know? I don't know what he thought of Brandeis's uh, change of mind on free speech or about Whitney. Well, I know that other public officials were inspired by 
Brandeis's concurrence so that the governor of California eventually pardoned Anita Whitney, citing Brandeis's concurrence. Mm. So Brandeis did have an effect on some of the public officials of their time. But no one could call Wilson a friend of free speech. He was responsible for many of these notorious Espionage Act uh, prosecutions, including that, I think, of Eugene V. Debs, who had to run for president as the socialist candidate from jail because his conviction had been upheld. Wilson is not in very good repute these days. He's appropriately criticized for having vigorously segregated the federal government and he he was uh, had a shameful record on race but there the redeeming feature of wilson was that like brandeis he was a vigorous critic of bigness in business and government very strong opponent of monopoly power for the banks wanted to break up the house of morgan so he shared brandeis's opposition to corporate and governmental bigness but he was no no friend of free speech let's talk a little bit about bigness uh, brandeis held views that for me are kind of hard to label. He was anti-big business, but also anti-big government. He opposed New Deal legislation in his later years on the court, but as a lawyer fought on behalf of government regulation of industry. You connect him to Jefferson, and I think rightfully so. I think you make a very compelling argument, and Brandeis says this himself. Uh, But do you think there's any political party or political philosophy or political thinker today who fits this Brandeisian mold? How should we consider his views today? Unfortunately, there there's not a consistent Brandeisian. I want to say he's kind of libertarian, but not really. Well, here's the, here's what he is. The, 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 today, there are civil libertarian liberals who share his suspicion of big business, but lack a similar suspicion of big government. That's the the, the Sanders wing of the mm-hmm. Democratic Party. And then there are libertarian conservatives who share Brandeis's suspicion of big government but lack his suspicion of big business. Uh, I think he actually was quite libertarian. Really? I think that the point of this book, libertarian friends on the podcast, uh, don't view Brandeis as a conventional progressive. He was not a fan of federal government regulation. He opposes Theodore Roosevelt's new nationalism, which Roosevelt cooked up with Herbert Crowley, the editor of The New Republic, in the spirit of Alexander Hamilton. Roosevelt wants big regulatory bodies to oversee the big corporations. Brandeis wants to break up the big corporations so they can be regulated and taxed at the state level. So the the regulations that he supports tend to be local rather than national. Like he did in Oregon with the the hours law relating to women workers, right? And where he developed this idea of the Brandeis brief. Absolutely. Great example. As you say, he successfully argued the Mueller in Oregon case, defending state regulations from maximum hour and minimum wage on the grounds uh, that he found all these facts that today look kind of uh, gendered, <laughs> suggesting that women need protection in the workplace uh, more than men. So, um, but he, he's just not a big government progressive. I guess you could say he's a small government uh, progressive. But he thought he thought that government closest to the communities that it was influencing uh, were the most important vehicles for government, right? Yes, like Jefferson himself, who Albert J. Nock in this phenomenal biography of Jefferson that was Brandeis's favorite book, and which listeners should totally check out, Nock on Jefferson. Nock is one of the great libertarian critics of the New Deal. He's, he's one of the most important libertarian writers of the 1920s. He calls Jefferson the great libertarian, and he dedicates the second edition of his book to Brandeis as a libertarian hero. And Nock 
like Jefferson, uh, you know, Jefferson wasn't opposed to all government either. He, he thought that in small scale farms and small scale communities, citizens could deliberate uh, with each other and come up with rules that would well uh, regulate themselves at the local level. Um, so I, I and, and Brandeis had no – Brandeis, according to his biographer Albert Leaf, was proud to be called a Jeffersonian. So this is what uh, – libertarian listeners, Jefferson and Brandeis are your guys. Yeah, but you have a movement right now in libertarianism to quote the title of a book that is – you know, they're trying to rehabilitate Lochner. And that Oregon case, I mean, that's the, the counter to Lochner in many ways. That's a really – this is a really important point. Um, Brandeis is a big fan of uh, – state level regulation. And he is opposed to what's now, I guess, called judicial engagement, but used to be called <laughs> judicial activism. Institute for justice yes. phrase, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whatever you call it. <laughs> Basically, there's a big debate now among conservatives as well as libertarians about how activist or engaged court should be in striking down laws. Mm -hmm. And Brandeis generally is not in favor of courts striking down laws at the local level because he has such faith in small-scale democracy and believes that citizens rather than judges should make fundamental questions of policy. He's willing to use the courts to strike down laws when they violate clearly enumerated constitutional rights like the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment. We haven't talked about his great privacy uh, opinions. but We're going to get important. there. <laughs> yes. Um, and he will vote to strike down the most centralizing aspects of the New Deal, including the uh, National Industrial uh, Recovery Act, which he hated as an agent of centralization, because he said that the point of the framers was to create in the federal government not efficiency but liberty, which is a very libertarian point. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't think he, he's he's concerned about giving judges too much discretion to impose contested uh, constitutional rights on at the local level. Yeah. So getting back to local, the local level, Brandeis was born in Kentucky. Uh, his parents fled Europe, um, fled tyranny in search of freedom uh, after the revolutions of what is 1848, I believe. How did this influence him, his early childhood in Kentucky? Brandeis views his father as someone who set off for America and liberty. Uh, his father was part of a group called the Pilgrims of 1848, who, as you said, fled those failed liberal re revolutions uh, and fled the tyranny of old Europe in search of liberty in America. And uh, Brandeis's father went uh, south to, to Kentucky and created a series of agrarian businesses completely in the, in the spirit of Jefferson. He was a grain manufacturer uh, and ran a, a series of successful small businesses, um, which Brandeis took as the model for personal and professional self-government. So he gets from his father this... Jeffersonian devotion to liberty and agrarianism and throughout his life believes like Jefferson, the greatest gift that anyone can give to a country is to create a new grain or rice, a very romantic uh, vision of liberty rooted in the land. And then he takes from his beloved mother a very uh, secular vision of Judaism combined with a devotion to ethics above all. Uh, his mother was a part of a uh, kind of reform Judaism uh, called the Frankist movement. And she raised Brandeis without explicit religion because she said that morality and truth are so important that I want my children to imbibe them without religious ritual. And that completely prophetic strain in Brandeis, which believed that truth and morality had been passed down in an unbroken line from the ancient Greeks to today, uh, informed a lot of his opinions as well. Well, education seemed to be very important in his upbringing. 
Uh, I think we would all do well to have parents like Brandeis's parents. Uh, but he was an exceptional student. He graduated at the top of his class in Harvard, right? Harvard Law School and uh, had the highest grade point average of anyone at the time. And I, I don't think anyone had a higher grade point average for like another eight decades or something like that. Have you found the guy who did, like or the woman? Did, has, has anyone That's surprised him? That's a great question. <laughs> I know. I, I meant to ask uh, one of the deans of Harvard Law School, but the, uh -huh. yeah, the legend was that it, it hadn't been surpassed for a long time, if ever. Yeah. He seemed like just a fantastic student. I was talking with uh, Fire's senior vice president for legal and public advocacy, and he said the uh, story that law students were told when they were in law school is that Brandeis never went to class and just came for the exams. Is that true? <laughs> I don't think the Harvard Law School stories uh, don't seem to be true. <laughs> many, many of them. Yeah. <laughs> but we do know that his uh, the faculty revered him, that he became very close to James Bradley Thayer, who was the famous advocate of judicial deference, and that he was so young, um, he had to get a special dispensation to graduate um, with his class. Uh, he, he, it started attending at 18, right? I think that's right. Yeah. And he, and he never formally graduated from college either. Hmm. Um, but he was just so brilliant that uh, the school allowed him to, to graduate. Well, let's move now to the aforementioned privacy discussion. Uh, he's often credited with developing the quote-unquote right to privacy. And uh, one scholar said he accomplished nothing less than adding a chapter to our law. Talk a little bit about this. How did this develop for Brandeis? And how did it fit within his view of free speech? Because he kind of meshes the two in his uh, – majority opinion in Packer Corporation v. Utah, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. So the balance between privacy and free speech is central to Brandeis. And once again, it's an example of Brandeis changing his mind. We saw him change his mind about free speech in Whitney, and he came to change his mind about the balance between privacy and free speech. As any good intellectual should yes. when they're engaging with information. Yes. Yeah. It's such a beautiful example about really being open to facts and being uh, willing to reflect on facts and uh, reach inductive results. That's what Brandeis said he learned to do in, in the German gymnasium in Dresden. Anyway, it's a, it's a really fascinating story. Let me tell it as efficiently as possible. <laughs> right. So 1890, he writes what many people know as the most famous article on the right to privacy ever. It's in the Harvard Law Review. It's called The Right to Privacy. And it's inspired by new technologies, in particular, the Kodak camera and the tabloid press that guarantee that what used to be whispered in the closets is now shouted from the rooftops. It was some mild social gossip in the Boston Society tabloids describing Charles Warren, Brandeis's law partner, that so upset Warren and Brandeis and led them to write this really famous article. Basically, the right that Brandeis and Warren are concerned about is the right of celebrities to keep their names out of the newspapers, to protect themselves from truthful but embarrassing gossip. It's the kind of Hulk Hogan right. In the Gawker case. In the yeah. Gawker case. Um, and it, uh, Brandeis and Warren look through American law and they don't find that right because they recognize that American law, unlike European or Roman law, contains no remedy for offenses against honor or dignity. This relates to the free speech debate, but the same right that people on campus are claiming, which is a right not to have their dignity affronted, was essentially what celebrities were claiming in the progressive era. So Brandeis proposes a, a series of new Brandeis torts. They sound like a delicious dessert, but they're actually an unsatisfying area of law. They include intrusion on seclusion, intentional infliction of emotional distress, uh, speech that's highly offensive to a reasonable person, basically truthful but embarrassing speech that can be removed from public discourse. 
Soon after Brandeis writes the article, he changes his mind. He says, he writes to his wife and says, I rewrite the privacy article. It's not as good as I thought it was. He realizes that this dignitary right that he's recognized clashes squarely with free speech, namely the right of citizens to write about public officials, whom Brandeis says should have a right to dignity, as well as private officials. And Brandeis comes to believe that citizens should not delegate to judges the power to decide what kind of speech is in the public interest or who's enough of a public figure to justify removing a truthful and embarrassing speech. That does, that's a decision, as, as we talked about in Whitney. He thinks that citizens have to make themselves. But he reconceives privacy as something that, far from clashing with, with what Neil, Lu, Neil Richards calls in his great book, uh, Intellectual Privacy, um, Brandeis comes to believe that uh, privacy can support intellectual uh, liberty rather than clashing with it. And that reconception comes in his, I think, his, his other greatest dissent, separate opinion, Olmsted versus yeah. U.S., 1928. It's prohibition, the war on booze, the government is going after bootleggers. Here at the Constitution Center, incidentally, tonight I'll encourage the crowd to come see this great exhibit on prohibition where we have Olmsted's phone, the very phone that this bootlegger uses to make phone calls where he's importing liquor from British Columbia and making a lot of illegal money during prohibition. So he's indicted for this importation and he objects that the telephone conversation should be excluded because there was no valid warrant when the government put the wiretaps. In a wooden majority opinion, the court disagrees. The opinion is written by Chief Justice William Howard Taft. Now, William Howard Taft is my new hero, and my next book in March is going to come out and is going to argue that Taft was our most constitutional pre uh, judicial president and most uh, presidential chief justice, and he approached every decision in constitutional terms. And there's a lot to be said for Taft, but that's for another podcast. Um, uh, Olmsted is not one of his greatest decisions because it's a very straightforward application of constitutional originalism. Basically, uh, Taft says at the time of the framing, you needed physical trespass to trigger the warrant requirement. Here, there's no physical trespass because it's a public sidewalk and the wiretap is placed on the wires leading up to the guy's office. No trespass, no warrant required. End of story. Simple decision. Brandeis dissents. And it's, again, one of the most visionary and prophetic dissents of the 20th century. Brandeis has in his desk drawer a clipping about a new technology, television. But he misunderstands television. It's 1920. Eight. He thinks it's a two-way technology where people can see each other through bo both ends of the camera. He anticipates Skype yeah. and webcams and, and all of these great new uh, two-way technologies. His law clerk, Henry Friendly, who became a famous judge, says, you can't just look out of a television camera and see someone on the other side. Now, of course, you can. But Brandeis refers to the um, t webcam technology, and he seems also to anticipate fMRI technology and uh, technologies of mind reading that can uh, reveal unexpressed thoughts, sensations, and emotions. I can't do Olmsted as, mu as much as a party trick as Whitney, although I could try. So you're opening your I'm book opening now. I'm opening the book, but it may take a second. So if I don't find it in just a moment, then I'm going to just... No, that's all right. It seems as though... I oh, mean, here we go. We got it. It seems as though Brandeis would be horrified uh, by the world we live in today in some senses. You know, if he's so horrified by the idea of this, you know, portable camera taking pictures of people on the streets. I mean, look at what we have today. Well, he... Uh, would have been. And we can try to channel him in a moment on this, the big question of ubiquitous surveillance in public. Could the government take drones that could fly in the air and reconstruct our movements for a month? Or the Supreme Court next term is going to take up what could be the most important digital privacy case of the 21st century. Can the police seize historical cell phone records without a warrant? Brandeis, again, I'm not usually confident about 
question about channeling Brandeis, which is kind of a fun party trick. But here I'm confident in saying his answer would be unequivocally no, no. The government may not collect a great deal of information about us that can reveal our unexpressed thoughts, sensations, and emotions, whether or not physical trespass is involved. And I'm confident because of the language in the Olmsted decision, which happily I've just found right here. So I'm going to read uh, this great passage from Olmsted. Brandeis says, Discovery and invention have made it possible for the government, by means far more effective than stretching upon the rack, to obtain disclosure in court of what is whispered in the closets. Moreover, in the application of a constitution, our contemplation cannot only be of what has been, but of what may be. And here's where he becomes a prophet. He says, the progress of science in furnishing the government with means of espionage is not likely to stop with wiretapping. Ways may someday be developed by which the government, without removing papers from secret drawers, can reproduce them in court, and by which it will be enabled to expose to a jury the most intimate occurrences of the home. That seems to anticipate cloud, yeah. computing, cloud computing. It's amazingly present. Listen to this, the next sentence. Advances in the psychic and related sciences may bring means of exploring unexpressed beliefs, thoughts, and emotions. That's fMRI technology that can read our minds and anticipate our thoughts. He then quotes James Otis denouncing the writs of assistance. And he says, to Lord Camden, a far slighter intrusion seemed subversive of all the comforts of society. Can it be that the Constitution affords no protection against such invasions of individual security? What's so amazing about this passage is Brandeis is not getting hung up on technical questions of was there trespass or not. He's not even getting hung up on the technical question of whether there was a warrant. He says that really invasive wiretapping that can reveal the telephone conversations of people on both ends of the wire may be unconstitutional even with a warrant because he says the wiretapping is even more invasive than the general warrants that sparked the American Revolution by authorizing the search of private papers without particularly specifying the place to be searched or the things to be seized. So I am confident in my overconfident Brandeis <laughs> channeling mode because I'm taking the liberty of channeling him um, that he would say in the term next case, absolutely, the government needs a warrant to get historical cell phone data that can reconstruct someone's movement for a month. And it might even be permissible, even with a warrant, unless the crime that was being reconstructed was extremely severe and there were minimization requirements to ensure the minimal intrusion on privacy. Well, the government does need a warrant to access our physical phones, right? Uh, you know, Riley v. California, I'm looking at my cell phone right now where I have a, a saver screen that says, get a warrant, and then quotes uh, the, the Supreme Court's decision in Riley v. California from 2014. Well, that was a beautiful decision, and what an amazing screensaver. I want one, too, and that's the... Where did you get it? I got it from some designer here in Philadelphia, posted it on uh, the web, the internet uh, right after the decision came down, and it's got, it just says, it's a black uh, screensaver that says in white text, get a warrant, and then has the case citation right under it. I love it. 573 <laughs> US, and it was so current that it doesn't even have the pin side for nope. legal wonks. I got it like the week after the opinion was handed down. Phenomenal. However, the Riley case, uh, for better or for worse, was an inspiring, wonderful, unanimous decision by Chief Justice Roberts, which quotes James Otis denouncing the writs of assistance and then quotes... John Adams saying, at that moment, the child revolution was born. So Roberts is absolutely channeling Olmsted in that 
great Riley decision. But Riley applied to searches of cell phones on arrest, and it was narrowly limited to ordinarily when the government arrests someone, they can pat you down and open any closed container on your body, including a cigarette package to see if it contains weapons. The government said a cell phone is just like a cigarette packet. We can open that. And the court unanimously said, no, cell phones contain so much intimate information that when you're arrested, they can't be opened without a warrant. But it didn't say the conditions under which cell phones can be searched at the border or in ordinary crimes or what the minimization requirements are. If you're searching a cell phone to look for evidence of uh, drugs, can you rummage through everything and find uh, unrelated crimes? Uh, Alex, Chief Judge Alex Kaczynski wrote a phenomenal concurring opinion in the CD. Of the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth yeah. Circuit, thanks, yeah. Um, in, the, in, the, in the CDT case uh, where he tries to propose a series of minimization requirements and ways of balancing the intrusiveness of a cell phone or computer search against the seriousness of the crime, the, both the Ninth Circuit itself and the U.S. Supreme Court have not confronted the conditions for minimizing the intrusiveness of searches of cell phones, and let, let's hope they do soon. Yeah, yeah. Um, what most surprised you in your study of Brandeis? I mean, what most surprises me here is how prescient he is. And the title of your book, to remind our listeners, is Louis D. Brandeis, um, colon, American Prophet. <laughs> so channeling the, the, the quote that you had there from Olmsted. But what most surprised you in studying him? Were you that familiar with him prior to writing this book? No, I wasn't. I was generally well disposed to him uh, through uh, law school. But I thought of him as a conventional top-down progressive. I, I, thought, I thought that he was in favor of uh, the, the regulations we've been talking about and believed in government by experts and so forth. I was surprised to learn that he was such a Jeffersonian libertarian. I didn't realize that Jefferson was such a powerful influence on him and that his hatred of bigness in business was mirrored by a hatred of bigness in government. This was a welcome homework assignment. Uh, the the Yale uh, University Press has a phenomenal series supported by Leon Black called the Jewish Lives Series, and they just match uh, great uh, historical figures to authors. And we should mention that he's Brandeis. the first Jewish justice to sit on, sit on the Supreme Court. He was indeed. Uh, not the first to be nominated. Uh, that was Judah Benjamin during the uh, Civil War era, but the first to sit. And he served with tremendous uh, distinction. And among his many achievements, which we haven't discussed, uh, was uh, becoming at the age of 50, the head of the uh, American Zionist movement and the individual more responsible than anyone else for persuading Woodrow Wilson and the British government to recognize the Balfour Declaration and an independent Jewish state in Palestine. But I, I was quite surprised by that, but, but by, by his uh, Jeffersonian and Athenian libertarianism. But I was most surprised, as, as, as you were, by what an astonishing, clear-eyed prophet he was. Mm. So the title of the book must have come after the bulk of your research. It did. I mean, I was so struck. This We're looking at the jacket photo, which we picked because he looks like a prophet. And people considered him a prophet. Franklin Roosevelt would call him Old Isaiah or My Dear Isaiah. And people describe how he had a prophetic mode where he would pace up and down his ascetic apartment on California Street in Washington, D.C., prophesying, basically saying morality is truth and truth is morality. It's been passed down in an unbroken stream since the Greeks and the Romans and the founders. Oh, it was awesome, said Dean Acheson, to hear him prophesy. So I think that he was channeling some deep truths about liberty and the structure of democracy and education. And his prophetic voice comes down to us with such clear 
relevance today. Yeah, we can even just think back to 2008 and the financial crisis and what he might have had said about that as well. I, I was I was struck by how many fun and interesting facts about Justice Brandeis are in your book. In your introduction, you said that uh, when the new Supreme Court was built, he refused to move into it <laughs> because he thought it was too extravagant. He thought it was an extravagant monument to big government. What was the most interesting fact to you? Uh, you know, big little tidbit about his life uh, that most people aren't familiar with, but that uh, really just speaks to his character and his personality. And I'm putting you on the spot here, I realize, as, as you ponder the question. He was an incredibly loving father and husband. And he was both, and, and son. He wrote these beautiful letters to his mother every night or and said goodnight to her uh, every night until he was 30 or so. And there's one letter to his mom, which every son should really try to write to his own mother. He says, I, I reflect to your mother about all you've done. And I, mothers like you should be increased a thousandfold and have more children because of your incredible morality and, and uh, truth. And then he is very tender to his wife and they had a beautiful marriage, but he would get up every morning and read for an hour to his daughters from seven to eight. And they read from philosophy and literature and mathematics. And he believed that learning together was necessary for their own education and for his lifelong education. They became very distinguished uh, scholars, uh, a business historian, uh, one and a leader of Hadassah, the, uh, his, his other daughter. I found myself, Brandeis is my personal as well as intellectual hero, and he inspired me in his devotion to lifelong learning and his determination to cultivate our faculties to try to live as well and with as much focused discipline as possible, to eat and drink less and to read and think more. I mean, he was very careful in, in his uh, habits and in he, he wasn't uh, a Stakhanovite in his work habits. He would set aside all of August to go to Cape Cod because he thought I can do 12 months of work in 11 months, but not 12. He thought it was important to go canoeing and hiking and spend time with your family. But he didn't believe in browsing the internet and watching cat videos. <laughs> I mean, he, he really was very focused on educating himself and others to prepare all of us for the duties as well as uh, the privileges of, of self-government. Yeah. I want to, I have two questions remaining for you. And I think this is as tough as the questions are going to get. I want to read a passage from your book here. You, you write that Brandeis's tendency to uphold laws he admired and to strike down those he deplored calls into question whether he had an independent commitment to judicial restraint that transcended his passionately held views on liberty and political economy. To put this squarely, do you believe that Justice Louis Brandeis was a good justice? Well, the answer to the question is yes, he was a great justice, but you're absolutely right to pick out that sentence. I'm so glad you did. For Thank you for reading it so closely. And that is, you, you also asked me what surprised me. I guess that surprised me. I had thought of him as a principal devotee of judicial restraint who was fiercely committed to a limited role for the courts. And it's true he really did have a limited role and he wrote the famous Ashwander decision saying the court should avoid sweeping constitutional rulings when it could and he there were all sorts of decisions on the Taft court that he joined in the interest of judicial restraint even though he didn't like them. But in the end I did conclude that there was a uncanny powerful overlap between the political and moral critique of bigness that he embraced before joining the court 
and his own jurisprudence. So I don't think that he had uh, an independent commitment to uh, judicial restraint that overrode that in all cases. And I even give an example of a, a case uh, where his one of his last law clerks, David Reisman, the great sociologist who I had the privilege of studying with in, in college, was frustrated because Brandeis ignored the empirical evidence uh, in that case because he was so devoted to judicial restraint, but he was more interested in restraint than facts there. So I guess that's a case where, where he was, was a restraint guy. But do I think he was a great justice? Yes. And what I learned from Brandeis, I mean, I believe very strongly in judicial deference and restraint. And I believe, like Brandeis, that when there are good arguments on both sides of a constitutional question, courts should hesitate to strike down laws unless the arguments for doing so are so powerful that they can be accepted by peoples of different points of view. I think Holmes was right to say the Constitution is made for people of differing points of view. But I think to be a great justice, you have to believe something. And Holmes didn't really have an independent commitment to anything except for judicial restraint. He was something of a nihilist. And that's why, although Holmes too was a great justice, I think Brandeis was greater because he believed in the Constitution. He believed in liberty as an independent value that had to be asserted by independent courts, regardless of whether popular majorities felt otherwise. And he was willing to pursue that as a constitutional philosophy, and he wasn't making it up because he was channeling Jefferson. And Jefferson wasn't at the Constitutional Convention, but the Jeffersonian tradition is a constitutional tradition, and it was uh, it, uh, transformed and magnified through Brandeis. And this critique of bigness that Brandeis and Jefferson and Jackson and Harry Truman represent is a constitutional principle. So uh, there are some things that are even more important than judicial deference, and, and those things are liberty, and Brandeis stood for liberty. Yeah. Well, how closely a justice ascribes to ju the concept of judicial restraint was oftentimes the benchmark for Supreme Court justices or justices in general. It's, you know, all good justices believe in ju judicial restraint. Uh, that's sort of changing and shifting now. And, and you recognize that in your book where you even use, you mentioned the phrase judicial engagement. And one of the great principles of judicial engagement is this idea that the government can't just walk into court uh, theorizing about why a law should, would be justified it needs to present facts in order to uphold its regulation. This is, the, you know, the theory put forth by the Institute for Justice. So in a, in a certain sense, uh, those in at advocating for judicial engagement are advocating the Brandesian idea of bringing facts to bear on cases in a way that, you know, judicial restraint and thinking about rational basis cases are not. That's absolutely right. And I very much respect my libertarian friends who embrace uh, judicial engagement and, and, and the Institute for Justice is doing important work in filing briefs on behalf of small business people who Brandeis would have had great sympathy for uh, and the emphasis on facts is Brandeisian. But Brandeis offers a caution to the new resurrection of judicial engagement because remember Brandeis is the greatest opponent of what used to be denounced by both sides as Lochnerism of his time and that's because he just saw a bunch of uh, – illiberal courts imposing not an implausible but a contested vision of anti-monopoly power, uh, a, a hatred of what used to be called class legislation, striking down all these progressive era laws that were based on facts, where the New York legislature had amassed thousands of pages showing why baking uh, conditions were really dangerous. 
And this was all just struck down in the name of a contested theory that you can't take property from one group and give it to another. So I, I guess what Brandeis teaches us is that courts have no monopoly on wisdom any more than legislatures do. And although it's admirable to defend liberty, he cautions us to not put too much faith in judges uh, in second guessing the judgments of the people about how to strike that balance, especially at the state level, because they may substitute uh, abstractions about monopoly power for the facts on the ground. I want to close by asking you to channel Brandeis here, as as you've done in the book. Uh, you, you have made very clear what you think is most admirable about the man. But what do you think Justice Brandeis would be most proud of as it relates to his legacy? Brandeis would have been proud of the Americans who read his legacy and commit themselves to lifelong constitutional education. Every moment that we can spend educating ourselves about the text and history of the Constitution, about the paradigmatic cases that inflamed the American Revolution and led to the Fourth Amendment, or that inspired the denunciation of the Alien and Sedition Acts and led to our modern notion of the First Amendment, is time where we're fulfilling our duty to educate ourselves and to engage in personal and political self-government. The internet poses many threats to the Brandeisian ideal of liberty, including its emphasis on mob judgments and spot referenda rather than thoughtful deliberation. But it also allows an extraordinary explosion of information that gives us each the opportunity to discipline ourselves, to improve our minds and dig deep into all of the complicated constitutional questions that are facing this country every day so that we can contribute to the debate and make up our own minds. That beautiful spirit of lifelong learning is one that Brandeis tried to instill in us. It's his gift to us, and it's so exciting to accept the gift and try to be worthy of his legacy. And you're helping prolong that legacy in the sense that you are here, president of the National Constitution Center, devoted to educating people about these constitutional principles. So Jeffrey Rosen, thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you, such a pleasure. That was National Constitution Center President and CEO Jeffrey Rosen. His book is called Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet, and it can be found wherever fine books are sold. If you're interested in seeing Jeff's keynote address to our FIRE Student Network Conference, check out FIRE's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash thefireorg. All one word right there. Again, youtube.com slash thefireorg. It should be there by the time this episode is available, and I'll link it in the blog post for this episode on FIRE's website. Also, I should add that I will provide a link to the Riley v. California screensaver, or wallpaper, I don't know what you call it, uh, the screensaver or wallpaper that Jeff and I discussed during this episode and that I have as the background on my phone. If you want to grab it for yourself, it can easily be found by Googling Riley v. California, get a warrant screensaver. Again, quote, Riley v. California, get a warrant screensaver, close quote. And after Googling that, just click on the images tab. I, I think it should be the first or second image that'll pop up using that Google search. Uh, before we close out here, a quick note about our next episode. I think we're going to be releasing it a 
bit early, but I'm not sure of that yet. If we're sticking to our normal production schedule, the next episode would come out on August 10th, Thursday, August 10th, but it might come out a bit earlier for reasons that you'll understand uh, next month, so stay tuned. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. And I, I, I really am interested in hearing all of your thoughts and interests, potential interests on an episode about China and its censorship regime. You can, of course, email me at so to speak at the fire.org. And if you've enjoyed this episode, however, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Reviews, as you know, help us attract new listeners to, sh- to the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening. Mm-hmm.